Glad you're here at FBC this morning. Uh, go ahead and join me in Exodus chapter 14. Would you turn there with me now? Uh, if you need a Bible, no problem. There are some in the seats in front of you, or again, you can pull that up on your phone or device. Uh, we'll actually have the words on the screen this morning if you want to follow along that way, but I encourage you to grab your own copy and open there. Uh, some weeks, while we've been in our Exodus series, we'll slow down and look at just a couple verses, right? Last week, if you were here, we looked at the end of chapter 13, and we covered a total of five verses for the morning. Uh, but then other weeks, we will go a little faster and cover a larger chunk of Scripture. And that's what today is going to be like as we jumped in, uh, jump into chapter 14. Okay, so we're doing all of chapter 14 today because we like to party. It's going to be fun as we go through 31 verses. A lot of ground to cover. So it's going to be good. So join me there if you would. Uh, if you had to look back on the story of your life and tell the story of your life to someone who was asking, there would be certain defining moments that you would have to mention. There would be certain moments that you would have to share about that uh, were a transition in your life or uh, days or moments that brought about change or a new reality in your life. Right? If you were telling the story of your life, you wouldn't be able to talk about every single day of your life. Because most of our days, for honest, are rather ordinary and uneventful in the bigger picture story of our lives. But there are those days, those moments that uh, define us, that shape us, that uh, signal a uh, direction change in our story. Think about uh, maybe the day you became a parent, or the day you got married, or the day you saw your spouse for the very first time. Or the day you left home for the first time, the day you graduated high school or moved away or started a new career, right? There are these defining moments that we look back on and we say, these were key points in my life. We can think more corporately as well about our identity as, as Americans and think about the story of our nation and look to our first Independence Day in 17. 76 or the, the civil rights movement in the 60s and say there were these defining moments in history that, that changed the course of our nation and who we are as a people. If you were to talk to an ancient Israelite, a Hebrew from the Old Testament, and you were to ask them about their story and their people, what defining moments were there along their journey that made them who they are, they would without a doubt mention Exodus chapter 14. They would without a doubt talk about the text that we are looking at today, the events of Exodus 14, where God fully and finally rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, where God miraculously led his people across the Red Sea as on dry land. And so today we're looking at arguably the defining moment for the people of God in the entire Old Testament. We're also going to see what it means for us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have made yourself known to us. You have shown us who you are. You have acted in history and God, you've given us your word to teach us and guide us and help us know you more. 
And so we pray, Lord, that you would take this time, that you would use it, that by your spirit, you would help us understand what we read and apply it to our hearts and our lives, Lord, for your glory and our good and the good of your world. Uh, we love you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, hey, let's jump right in to chapter 14, verse 1. It says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Haharath, between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think... The Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And so the Israelites did this. Okay, we're at the, we're at the very end here of this epic story of rescue, where God is leading his people out of Egypt. They've been waiting and waiting, but now they're on the move. They've packed a small travel bag, and they're leaving town. But we saw last week that the route God is taking them on is a little unconventional. Right? It's the scenic route. It's a bit of a zigzag pattern, and we see that continue here in the early verses of chapter 14. They're uh, turned back a little bit, uh, moving around, camping at different spots uh, to the outside eye, like Pharaoh, he would hear about this and see this, and it seems like the people are confused, like they're not going the right direction, like they're leading themselves into a, a dead-end trap with the desert and the sea on different sides, and so they're not quite out of the woods yet. And we see that the situation gets a little tense in verse 5 as Pharaoh has a bit of a change of heart. You see, it says, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled... Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi Haharoth, opposite Baal Zephon. So, one last time here in the story of Exodus, we see Pharaoh's pride, his stubbornness, his hard heart rear its ugly head. As you see in verse 5, he says, What have we done? Our whole labor force now is leaving town, they're gone. This is going to have serious economic implications. This is a, a really bad idea. And so he says, well, we're going to chase them down. We're going to bring them back. And so he takes his chariots and his army, and they go and, and pursue them. Now, again, we've seen something like this numerous times in the book of Exodus. As we've interacted with Pharaoh, we've seen his hard heart, his unwillingness to repent and listen to God, and we've seen what appears to be repentance at times, where he gives in somewhat, but then he changes his mind, and then he gives in again, and he changes his mind, even though there's been destruction brought upon his land, devastation to his people and to his family. He's lost a son. Still, 
Still here in chapter 14, it appears that he hasn't learned his lesson. This is the, the last encounter we have with Pharaoh in the story. It's the last place where we directly encounter Pharaoh and the Egyptians in the book of Exodus. And this is what we see. This is the last glimpse of Pharaoh that we have. Still a hard heart. Still in rebellion against God. And we see this over and over again in the text as a warning, as a, as a reminder of how possible it is for us, likewise, to have hard hearts to the Lord, to not listen to God, to not want to submit to God, to not want to obey or, or follow God. And we see in our own lives, at times, partial repentance, right? Where there's, there's pain, there's difficulty in our lives, and so we, we make a change of course, we return to the Lord, maybe, but then things level out in our lives. The chaotic season ends, and we find ourselves going back to business as usual, forgetting our commitment to the Lord, where we say, initially, maybe, uh, yes to God. We say yes to God in something that he has in front of us. But then, as we embark upon it, the, the pain is too great or the cost is too high, and so we change our minds, or we turn back. We see this often in the church, where maybe, maybe you've experienced this. You, you come on a Sunday, and maybe you have a, a really great experience, and you connect with God through time of worship and singing, or, or through the text that we're looking at that particular morning, and it seems like God is, is getting through to your heart, and you're saying, God is convicting me, or speaking directly to me, or about my life, or something I need to do. It's powerful. I think it signals maybe a new day in your life, but then you, you go out from here and there's, there's no follow-up, or you go out and there's just back to normal life. And no real lasting change or impact comes. So, so initial moment of, yes, Lord, followed by change of heart, a change of mind, which shows not genuine repentance, not genuine trust. So we see this example once again of Pharaoh. But he's not the only negative example in the passage. Look how the people respond in verse 10. It's not pretty either. It says, as Pharaoh approached, again, remember, the people are leaving, Pharaoh's chasing them down, okay, with his army. The Israelites, Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. And then they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? Which, that is a great line, by the way. That is a great verse. They are just so much sass in them right now, okay? Then, what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. So think about this. The, the people look up, and they see Pharaoh's army pursuing them, and naturally, they're afraid. Or verse 10 says they're terrified because what they see is not a group of happy soldiers concerned about their goodwill coming to gently return the Israelites back to Egypt. Think about who's pursuing them. Egyptian soldiers. They've just gone through plague after plague. Their land has been devastated. Each soldier has lost a firstborn child. These are not happy people coming to uh, instigate some kind of peace treaty. They're angry. 
and they're pursuing the people of God. And the Israelites realize this, and they're afraid. But they respond with such saltiness, right? Was, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you wanted to bring us out here to die? Think about the irony of that statement. Ancient Egypt, the land known for their almost obsession with tombs and mummification and pyramids and life after death. Saying, was that not good enough for you, Moses? The land of Egypt, were their graves not good enough for you? You had to take us out here just so we could die. Was that your plan all along? You should have just left us alone. We would have been better off in Egypt. We would have been better off staying in slavery. So their fear, which we can all understand and maybe relate to, led them to a place where they doubt God's promises for them. They doubt God's plans for them. And think about this. They had just left Egypt. Okay, they had just, it was fresh in their minds, the plagues, God's powerful hand against the Egyptians. They'd just seen it. They're being led literally by a pillar of cloud and fire in front of them where they could look and see miraculous things, God's presence with them. Not only that, but they, as they left Egypt, remember what the text told us? They, they plundered the Egyptians, so they didn't leave empty-handed. They're walking out with, with hands full of jewelry and fine clothes from the Egyptians in, in total victory. They haven't even had time to try on all their new clothes or try on all their new jewelry. And now they're already saying, God's just let us out here to kill us. Like at, at first sign of trouble, even with all these miraculous things fresh in their minds, first sign of trouble. Well, we had a good run, guys. We had a good run. Game over. We're all going to die. It's been fun while it lasted. We should have just stayed in Egypt. At first sign. So I, I see this in the text and I say, wow, we can relate. I can relate. To doubt, to forgetting God's work in our lives. Like sometimes don't we think, you know what, if God, God, if you just answer this prayer, if you just show up in this situation, if you just enter into this circumstances and bring about change, I'll never doubt again. I'll never fear again for the rest of my life, God. If you just, if you just respond now, I will be set and trust you forever. But it doesn't normally work that way. It doesn't normally work that way. We see God answer prayer and we see God show up in clear ways. We see God step in, but then more circumstances come our way and we respond with, God, are you there? God, are you real? God, are you good? God, are you faithful? God, will you step in? God, will you come through? We doubt. And I don't know, I'd have to talk to maybe some of the older believers in this room. Uh, maybe it gets easier as you get older, but uh, I know as, as a young person, uh, this often is a challenge. Maybe, maybe as you've walked with the Lord for, for decades upon decades, it, maybe it gets a little easier to look at the, the previous decades of life with the Lord, and you've seen, uh, I've seen this story, right? I've seen this story before. I know God shows up. I know God is good. I know God is faithful. And, and so maybe it gets easier as you go along, but I know, especially for us young people, it's, it's easy to doubt. 
It's easy to struggle. And so, so when we feel those emotions crop up within us, the fear, the doubt, which will come, it's an invitation for us to remember who God is and to remember what God has done, both in history, both in Scripture, and, and in our lives. The answered prayer is the faithfulness to us in our life experience already, even those events in, in the recent past that we maybe have already forgotten about. Now, we see how God responds in verse 13, and we're, gonna, we're just going to read a big old section of Scripture here from verse 13 all the way to the end of the chapter, okay? And then we're going to go back through it. So see what unfolds here. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand <coughs> over the sea. And all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and, get, excuse me, and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Well, the, the events here that we read are, are narrated in a, in a pretty straightforward way. Right? Here's what happened. Here's what God did. Here's what the people did. Here's what the Egyptians did. And it tells us how God parts the Red Sea quite miraculously, and the people of God pass through the sea as on dry ground, and they reach the other side. Meanwhile, God holds off the Egyptians, then 
confuses the Egyptians, then causes them to stumble with their chariots in the water, and then God closes the sea upon them and judges them, and the people of God are officially out of Egypt. This is really the last narrative section that we're going to look at as a church. Next week, chapter 15, is really the song of celebration, this song uh, celebrating how God saved his people and rescued them. So we're going to look at that. But this was the last uh, narrative part of the story that we're going to see. And so what I want to do is go back through the text that we just read and point out some, some key takeaways, some key lessons that we're to learn about God and about our lives with him. So a few things to see. First, the text makes clear that God fights our battles. The text makes clear, God fights our battles. Salvation is of the Lord. Rescue comes from the Lord. Notice this in a few places in the text. Verse 13, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Again, this is when they see the Egyptians, they're scared, they're terrified. Don't be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. That's a key verse, Exodus 14, 14. The Lord will fight for you. You be still. God's going to handle this. God's going to get you out of this situation. Then verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and the left. So after holding off the Egyptians so the people could pass through, excuse me, God parts the sea so that the people could pass through. It's the Lord who creates the way for them. Then verse 25 says, He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. This is the Egyptians. And the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them. It says, the Lord is fighting for them. God confused the Egyptians. God jammed their wheels. God brought judgment upon them. Then, verse 30, that day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses. So we see over and over again in the text, the Lord fighting for his people. The Lord saving his people. God making a way for his people. And we could even look back throughout the rest of Exodus that we've seen. Who was it that called Moses? It was the Lord. Who was it that sent Moses? It was the Lord. Who was it that brought the plagues? It was the Lord. Who was it that humbled Pharaoh? It was the Lord. Who was it that led the people? It was the Lord from start to finish. Exodus is about God saving his people, God fighting their battles. From start to finish, salvation is a work of God. Notice that. The people didn't save themselves. The people of Israel were not more uh, clever than the Egyptians or stronger than the Egyptians. They didn't work harder than the Egyptians. God led them out. And it wasn't the the wise leadership of Moses that led them out. Yes, God used Moses. We can look to Moses as an example in many ways. But 
God was the one who led them out. It wasn't just wise leadership. And so this applies to, to our lives in, in two ways. When we think about the Lord fighting our battles. And the first, maybe the most natural connection that is already in some of our minds, uh, this applies to salvation in Christ. When we think about how we today are rescued and saved from sin and death and given eternal life, that comes about not because we earned it, we worked for it, we fought for it, but it's because God fought that battle. Jesus won that victory for us. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus rose again. God offers us new life, new hearts, His Spirit in us. Again, by grace through faith. Not through works. Not because we earned it. Not because we worked hard for it. Not because we deserve it. God fought that battle. He defeated Satan, sin, and death. He rose in victory to give us new life, both now and forever. He fought the battle. He won the battle. And we get to experience the gift of salvation. The gift of forgiveness, the gift of redemption that he freely gives to us if we would trust in him. So that's the first application. God fights our battles. This applies to our salvation today, which is, is necessary to say. I know we talk about this a lot. We talk about this a lot. Uh, but it's so counterintuitive, isn't it? Because so much of life is what we earn or deserve or, or work for. So much of the world works that way. So much of our relationships uh, works that way. But not with the Lord. He gives us what we don't deserve. The other way that this applies to our lives today, when we think about God fighting our battles, we can apply this to specific, uh, excuse me, specific challenges that we encounter in our day-to-day -day lives and realize that the battles we face are not ours alone. So we might face situations in life that, that we're not capable of fighting or, or winning these situations on our own. And it reminds us of the importance of prayer. Anyways, I know people who have family members they love or, or kids that are grown and they don't know the Lord. And they're not walking with the Lord. I know as, as parents or as family members, that's got to be one of the most difficult things you face. Maybe you've engaged conversation after conversation with that person about Jesus or invited them to church or given them books to read. But sometimes you reach a place where you realize, you know what, Lord, this is not a battle that I can win. This is something that you, you have to do. You have to handle this. This is in your hands. This is not in my power to change. And so, yes, I'll do what I can do, but ultimately, Lord, this is, this is your battle to fight. This is in your hands. Or maybe you find yourself in, in a situation at work or out in your community where you, you're being slandered. People are saying things about you that aren't necessarily true, but you don't know exactly who. You don't know who to talk to about it. You want to go and, and fight that battle yourself and right all the wrongs that are being said about you. But for whatever reason, it's not, it's not possible to do that. It's a situation where you can step back and say, you know what, Lord, I can't fight this battle. I can't win this battle. I don't even know where I would start, Lord. So I'm just going to trust that this is in your hands. You're going to fight this for me. The truth's going to come to the surface. I'm going to trust you in this situation no matter what happens. So you can be still and trust that the Lord will fight for you. Maybe you find yourself in just an overwhelming health situation 
or circumstances, or it just, it just seems impossible. You don't even know how you would start addressing it or getting out of the mess that you find yourselves in. And that's where, again, you can say, all right, Lord, I'm going to trust that you are at work. I'm going to go to you in prayer and trust that this is a spiritual battle that you will step into, that you will address, that you will deal with. Again, not, not to say that we should be passive and not act. Again, there are times where we need to act and step out and address the wrongs and injustices we see in the world and take stands for things. Of course, we need to be people of action. But there are certain times and situations where we've done all we can do and we know that it's only by the Lord's power and grace and work that something will change. And so, yes, we should be praying along, all along, but especially in those moments, saying, Lord, this is your fight. Lord, I'm going to trust that you will fight for me. So God fights our battles. He saves us. And the other point we see in the text is that he saves us for his glory. He saves us for his glory. And you probably saw this as we read through the text, right? Verse 14, excuse me, chapter 14, verse 4. It says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Or look at verse 17 and 18. It's almost just quoting verse 4. It says, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And at the end of all this, in verse 31, it says, When the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they put their trust in him and in Moses his servant. So after all is said and done, the people realize that it was God who won the day. God received their praise, their worship, their trust. And if we even rewind a little bit to Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, it says this, God speaking to Pharaoh, but I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So God's saying, through all these events, people will see my power, my glory, my name will be lifted up in all the earth because of what I have done. So friends, when God saves us, he does so for our good, right? We are blessed. We benefit eternally, no doubt. But the story of salvation, the story of scripture is not ultimately about us. It's about the Lord, that, that God would be made famous, that we would make much of him, that his fame would be spread throughout all the earth. And this is not just an Exodus thing, like some, some you know, random verses we see scattered in Exodus. We see this elsewhere in scripture. Right? What, did, what did Jesus, our Lord, teach us to pray? Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's where we start in prayer. God, would your name be glorified and lifted up and made much of? Or we look at Psalm 115, verse 1. It says, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Or think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and 
glorify your Father in heaven. Are we thinking of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, that says what? To do everything for the glory of God. So, so the same here with the book of Exodus. We are called to live in such a way that God is glorified. That, that people can see how, how good and beautiful and faithful and, and glorious God is. That's, that's the direction of our lives. Not, not to make much of ourselves. Not that we would be praised or seen a certain way. Not that we would be celebrated, but, but that God would be praised and glorified. Why? First, because he's worthy of such praise. He's worthy of our complete devotion, our worship, all of the praise and devotion that the world can muster. God deserves it. But also we see that it's not just that God is some egomaniac on a quest to be praised at the inconvenience of his people as if uh, we are harmed by God being praised. It's actually good for us to worship God. It's good for us to seek the glory of God. Think about it this way. Pastor John Piper put it this way. So the really wonderful moments of joy in this world are not moments of self-satisfaction, but self-forgetfulness. Standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and contemplating your own greatness is pathological. At such moments, we were made for a magnificent joy that comes from outside of ourselves. You see what he's saying? He's saying real, true, deep joy for us comes when we stand in awe and wonder and amazement at something that is greater and bigger than ourselves. So when we look at God and see him in his glory, that's what we were made for, to worship him, to make much of him and, and see that, that we become less while he becomes more. It brings us great joy to essentially forget about ourselves and make much of him. And so God is, is rescuing his people. He's leaving them out of slavery in Egypt. Not so that we would stand back and say, you know what, those people must be pretty great. People of Israel must be pretty special that God would do all this for them because we know that it's not because they were bigger or stronger or better than the Egyptians or any other nation, but it was because God loved them. And so, so the idea is that in light of this, when we observe this in the text, we say, you know what, that God is pretty special. The God who rescued them is an amazing, awesome God, and I want to worship him too and make much of him too and give my life to him as well. We see how he saves and how he rescues and how he transforms us. Now, friends, there's, there's one last thing we need to uh, talk about a little bit before we wrap up chapter 14 because it's possible to read chapter 14, study chapter 14, and, and walk away missing maybe the bigger picture that this narrative is supposed to point us towards. Okay, we could, we could look at chapter 14 and the events of... Uh, the people of God crossing the Red Sea and leave encouraged to recognize our own Red Sea experiences in our lives and circumstances and trust that God's going to lead us through them, that God's going to lead us out, 
that God's going to show us the way. One author wrote it this way. Every age has its Egypt, its force of oppression, just as every age has its children of Israel who long to be free. And so we can look at Exodus chapter 14 and say this is to give us hope and encouragement that in whatever trouble we encounter, we can trust God to bring us through. Now, there is absolutely truth in that statement, in that sentiment. We can look to this and be encouraged that God will lead us, that God will guide us, that He is powerful and able to step in and change circumstances, even in dramatic ways. God is powerful and able and good, and He can rescue us from hopeless situations. No doubt, that is true. But we must not stop there. And that's sometimes what we do when we look at a text like this, is we stop there, we leave it at that. Hey, go face your Red Sea, God is with you, great. We can't stop there, there's more. There's more to this story. We have to think, what's, what's the bigger picture here? Is there a bigger story that this narrative actually connects us to? And we've talked about already how this story points us forward to Jesus and the salvation and the rescue that Jesus offers us. And so in, in just a second, we're, we're going to watch uh, this short little video that's going to go through some parts of the Old Testament and show us how in addition to the uh, events and the circumstances at the time and, and what the text meant to the people at the time, it's going to point us to the bigger story of Jesus and what we're supposed to take away from it. Take a look. What is the Bible really about? Is the Bible basically about me and what I must do? Or is it basically about Jesus and what he has done? When you read in Luke and Acts how Jesus in those 40 days uh, got his disciples together, 40 days before he ascended, after he was raised, what was he doing? Basically he was saying everything in the Old Testament is about me. He says, the reason you didn't understand what I was about was you didn't realize that everything in the prophets and the Psalms and the, the law was pointing to me. Do you believe the Bible is basically about you or basically about him? Is David and Goliath basically about you and how you can be like David and Goliath or basically about him, the one who really took on the, mate, the only giants that can really kill us? And so his victory is imputed to us. Who's it really about? That's the fundamental question. And when that happens, then you start to read the Bible new, you know. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the, into the void, not knowing whither he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. While God said to Abraham, now I know you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, now we know that you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. 
Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save him. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job. He's a truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life. Who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, says, when I perish, I'll perish for them, to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. He's the real Passover lamb. He's, he's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's not about you. So you can see how when we see Scripture as pointing us to Jesus, it's going to change the way that we might interpret some of these Old Testament passages like Exodus 14. Now again, it's, it's important that we not just make a, a superficial jump to Jesus whenever we read the Old Testament. We should study the Old Testament and study these passages and understand them uh, and what they meant when they were written for the people they were written to and do the hard work of grasping that and there are going to be parallels of what that means for us and how we should trust God and how we should respond and what God might want to do in our situation. We can do all of that. But we just shouldn't stop there. We also have to see the, the bigger story that this connects us to. And Exodus 14 connects us to Jesus. And it shows us that just as God led his people out of slavery in Egypt to freedom, so now for whoever trusts in Jesus, he leads us out of the Egypt of sin and death through the water and into freedom and eternal life with him. So Exodus is not just about our Red Seas and our temporary circumstances, though there are applications there, primarily helps us understand Jesus and this bigger story of redemption and what God is up to in the world. That Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, has made a way for us to leave Egypt and walk in freedom with him. So friends, we get to celebrate that now as we come to the table together. We're going to take communion in just a minute and remember Jesus, our Savior, remember the elements, the, the bread and the cup, remind us of his broken body and his shed blood for us. And so we come to the table as a church family to celebrate who he is and what he has done. Now the music is going to play in just a moment, and then you'll have an opportunity to come forward to one of the two stations as you are ready. The elements are gluten-free. And just a reminder that this is for for anyone who has put their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. So even if you're from out of town or visiting or from a different church, we, we invite you to participate with us. Uh, if you're not a believer, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, then this would be a time for you just to remain seated. I don't want you to feel an obligation like, oh, this is just what you do at church. You've got to jump, jump through this spiritual hoop. Uh, or it's going to be weird if I don't do this. If, if you're not a Christian, please just invite you to stay seated and reflect on what we've talked about this morning. I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll celebrate. <clears throat> Jesus, we thank you for 
your salvation. You fought for us. You won the battle. You conquered Satan, sin, and death and rose from the grave so that we can have new life in you and with you. And so we come to the table to remember you as a church family. Remember what you've done for us, your broken body and shed blood for our salvation. Lord, we pray that you would bless this time as we come with just humble hearts and open hands to receive, realizing that everything we have is from you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.